You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here at Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV's Northern Command in Central Maryland. And yes, it is late Friday, March 23rd. And I cannot wait for this week to be over. But on the other hand, I couldn't wait to come back to this microphone. We had a guest on earlier this weekend. I wasn't able to delve into this omnibus, cracknibus, as much as I I should have. I hope many of you, or all of you, have seen my article detailing the 10 biggest problems. Obviously, there's a lot more um, problems with the process, the policies, the priorities of this bill, but you guys already know that by now. I was going to do a podcast earlier today, and I waited off after Trump sent out his tweet threatening to veto the bill because I didn't want to accuse him of doing something that he didn't do, even though I was pretty sure it was just a ploy. And in fact, Trump's initial tweet, the conservative media's reaction to it, and what Trump ultimately did is a perfect illustration of the thesis I put out in my article today. It's titled, There Are No Real Red States. But it's really more about the opioid crisis of the conservative movement, their addiction to the political morphine of distractions and tabloid politics, rather than having a forward-looking vision on what we can and should accomplish and demanding that of the president. And I noted that if we actually had a movement that for a month, like we were doing here at the conservative conscience, really we were doing for a year on the budget bills but particularly the last month, focusing on the fact that, okay, you did one half of the betrayal, you blew the budget caps in February, but you don't have to appropriate all that money. And in fact, you could use the bill as leverage and threaten a veto of anything that doesn't fulfill four or five red lines. And we wrote a piece earlier this week on the importance of a veto, but we've been talking about it for a full year. And one of the big themes that we've pushed here There's about three or four themes we've pushed consistently since Trump assumed office. And many many of you who are regular listeners are probably sick of me saying this by now. But my point is that Trump's biggest strength, I believe, is that unlike Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and most other Republicans, he genuinely does care about what his base voters think about him which is a tremendous opportunity we've never had this generation. We could get in his face and demand our priorities and obviously give him robust support when he fulfills them. Except the problem is we don't have any priorities. Who's the we? There is no conservative movement. Here's the problem. The big story here isn't the GOP Congress. It isn't so much Trump, although it's a little bit Trump, and we'll get to it. But to the extent Trump's the story, it's more a reflection of the conservative movement. I said this after a number of other major betrayals. You can only have a political party that successfully commits political adultery day after day if the movement is okay with it. The truth be told, clickservitism, and that's what I call it, because it's all about, ooh, my next cable hit. My next uh, article I gotta write. Ooh, my take, my hot take. People don't wake up every day and say, how could I give a vision for this country and give the most factual information and the most compelling arguments and the processes and strategies to, to, to put forth and succeed in implementing our ideas? No, it's all reactive, not proactive. So we're stuck with this paradox that on the On the one hand, Trump has the ability to get people to care about things. But on the other hand, he won't care about most good things most of the time unless we put it on his plate. But most of us, and when I say us, I mean colleagues in the conservative media, won't put it on his plate unless he puts it on the plate. 
because they don't know what to talk about unless either the media talks about it or Trump talks about it. And they're just reacting. So if Trump says something, they'll react to Trump saying it, but they won't push him into saying it. Where do we see this play out? So the day started out with Trump threatening to veto the bill, saying it's a horrible bill. And it was interesting watching the conservative pundits respond. And they were like, veto it. Yeah, yeah, veto it. They all sounded like me, what I've been saying for the past year. But, and I'm not complaining about it. It's a good thing, better, better late than never. But what I noticed is they would never, ever mention Trump through the whole process. Some of my allies, you know, in this business, they kept tweeting about Congress. And I kept tweeting back at them, you understand that the president has a veto. You understand that, you know, it takes 218 members to pass something out of the House, 51 slash 60 to pass out of the Senate. But one man's signature could leverage the entire thing. Trump has power. Um, against all of them. And, and, and this is why um, Benjamin Franklin was scared about a presidential veto. He thought it would give the executive too much power because he could extort them to do anything he wants. And yet none of these people called on him to do it because they don't want to pressure him and ruffle feathers. It, it wasn't cool to talk about a veto until Trump himself talked about it. Then they're like, yeah, veto, veto. And I was laughing because the irony was missed on them. They don't understand how much power they have. Everyone in this movement, there's a dirty little secret. Let's say Trump will betray us. So they'll all focus, all the talking heads, all the conservative writers, they'll focus on Congress, but not Trump because they're scared of him. They want to, you know, tiptoe around him because, you know, most of their listeners like him. And that's fine. But what I tell people is, don't take it personal with whether you love or hate Trump. It has nothing to do with that. Use your leverage. He cares about what you think. So get in his face. Say, Mr. President, you have this power. Don't betray your promise. Do it. But no, it wasn't until Trump said it was kosher to talk about it. Then they talked about it. But it was too late. There was no way Trump was going to have the guts when they all left. Con- you know, left all the congressmen went home. And, you know, it's an hours before the so-called government shutdown. He wasn't going to do it. There's no way he was going to do it. But if he would have built the drumbeat for a month and messaged all this, it would have been a different story. But there was no, and I'm not trying to excuse Trump here. I'm just saying, at best, Trump is a convert to some aspects of conservatism. But a convert to any religion can't be more fervent than the practitioners of the religion in that area themselves. It was like, well, Trump's not a real conservative. Well, the problem is most of the conservatives aren't real conservatives. Most of the elected members of Congress and most of the unelected officials in these organizations, media outlets, you name it. They're a bunch of frauds. This is the opioid crisis of the conservative movement. We're all talking about Stormy Daniels and Mueller and Russia all day. And there's no vision of, of, of what matters. And then they wake up the love there. Oh, this omnibus is terrible. Well, gee, yeah. You know, if you would have gotten in Trump's face for the past month, I think he would have listened. The fact that Trump actually started talking about vetoes, look, I don't know if it was me. I know, you know, a lot of people did send people close to him my article. I sent it there and I was passed around the White House. I think it was more Hannity and a couple others did talk about it a little bit. Jim Jordan was on Fox and Friends, which is basically Trump's Bible. Uh, He was on Fox and Friends this morning talking about this. So I think that influenced him. But it's always... It's always too little, too late. But either way, Trump has rendered himself a lame duck president. See, part of why we were talking about this for months is that we came to a realization that others seem to miss. The Republicans are doing nothing about the filibuster. And when I say doing nothing, I mean even using existing Senate rules to make them implement or sustain a talking filibuster. They're doing nothing about it. They will not pass budget reconciliation this year. So you're not even going to have the one exception to the filibuster rule that allows you to pass one good bill like they did with the tax cuts. So that's gone. 
almost all of the good executive policies are being thrown out by the courts and they're doing nothing to push back against the courts or just not listen to them. Just yesterday, a district judge did the same thing that the district judges did in the DACA cases, not only saying lawlessness is a law, amnesty is the law, transgenderism in the military, which didn't exist from 1789 until the last year of Obama's presidency, is now the law of the land. But they actually demanded that Trump disclose, this was yesterday, district judge demanded that Trump disclose his legal and political advice from his aides leading up to his decision to overturn Obama's transgender castration policy. So everything is being thrown out. That's the whole irony of, of this whole, Trump is, was talking about DACA today. You know, if you heard the press conference, it was all about, oh, I'm more pro-DACA than the Democrats are. Really? So that's our new strategy. We try to outleft the Democrats. What do you think that does messaging-wise? You see an issue forever. That's not a clever strategy. You push back against it. Oh, DACA, DACA's great. And I'll get to that in a minute, how he contradicted every word he said on, dr- on the drug crisis pouring over our borders. It poured over precisely from the young people, precisely the promise of DACA. We have it from DEA reports, Texas Department of Public Safety reports. I- I- I've heard this from Border Patrol agents. We have a lot of data. I have a whole nother article coming out on this. And Trump himself said this in his New Hampshire speech. But then like a drunken fool, he 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 says the opposite. I mean, this man, he contradicted himself and told more lies in this press conference than words spoken, including pronouns and articles. It was just absurd. But, but back to the main point here, no budget reconciliation, no getting around. So no good bill will be passed. Actually, inaction from now until the rest of the, rest of the year is a good thing because any bill that will pass will be a bad bill. So right now, Everyone agrees. It's very clear. They will lose the the House. There is no question about that. If nothing changes, your only hope is throwing a Hail Mary, throwing, making a big play. Maybe it will work. Maybe it won't. But certainly if you don't give the voters any reason to vote for you, you saw that again in the Illinois elections, the primaries, um, Democrat turnout was was record and Republican turnout was the lowest since records were kept. When I say record, I mean, you know, the what was posted on the election sites I saw since 1998. And that's pretty bad because turnout was pretty low in the late nineties. Now with social media and everything, everyone's more juiced up about things. Turnout has forever been higher the last four or six years or so. So uh, that's pretty bad to sink that low. They're giving them no compelling reason to vote for them. So this budget bill was the last opportunity. That, that's why it's so important. It was the last opportunity. The only way I kept screaming this the whole time. It was like, look, if you're not going to leverage a veto on legislative bills and you're not going to you know, be more forceful about demanding changes and you're, you say, look, maybe it's not Trump's fault. There's nothing you can do. He called for it already. McConnell won't listen. Fine. But it's the budget bills. That, that's your last point of leverage. And by the way, the other one would have been the debt ceiling. But Trump gave that away for free as a two for one with the budget caps in February. I said all along, if you're going to capitulate on that, at least demand that the debt ceiling be left out and use that as a a separate leverage. But no, wouldn't do that. So the point is, this is the last thing. I laughed when Trump said, but I promise this is the last time I'm doing this. Don't you ever send me a bill like this again. I was laughing. You're right, Mr. Trump. It will be the last time because it's the last time until you lose this election. And the next year when the Democrats have more power, They'll, they'll, they won't send an omnibus bill. Maybe they'll send individual appropriation bills. They'll control it. They'll do it through the front door. What are you going to do about it? Veto it? Huh? You're too scared to use your veto pen. And it was so beta, like, oh my gosh. Well, I need a line item veto, he said. So he's asking for something that he knows is impossible. It, I, I like the idea, but it might be unconstitutional. I mean, certainly the courts have said that. Not that the courts are the final word on it. Um, but a tool he knows will never get done. But he's ignoring the tool that he has, which is so powerful. If Trump would veto this, they could not override it. It would take about 100 Republicans in the House, and there aren't 100 House Republicans that would have the guts to go against the president. A, to go against the president like that to begin with, you know, with their constituents, and B, um, the bill itself is so unpopular. So, um... You know, it, it, that, that's just so beta. 
oh, I'm, I'm so powerless. What could I do? The Democrats demanded this. You're never going to get more power than this. That's the joke. The Democrats, their power is only going to grow. You're never going to have 60 seats. Everyone agrees. The map doesn't exist. They will never have 60 seats. But he won't threaten it. But again, Trump is Trump. I mean, I'm not surprised by any of this. I mean, you, you could go back and play my podcast from 2015, 2016. I said this all about him. I said, you think he's this strong man, authoritarian, you know, a lot, both, both um, you know, supporters and opponents felt he was this some like strong man or something. I was like, he's actually going to be really weak. But um, it's not even about Trump. And that's what I'm telling you. It's about the reason why we have him and the reason once we have him, why he's much weaker is because we have a weak conservative movement. We have the icing without the cake. We have the harmony without the melody. We have a full orchestra of musicians and musical instruments. But we don't have a tune. We have a bunch of noise and a ruckus without a tune. That's what you get. We have a lot of things. We have all sorts of writers and talkers and organizations up the wazoo. GOP majorities in, in, on a federal level, on a state level. But it doesn't matter because there's no forward-looking agenda, both broad principle-based, both specifically specific policy-oriented, and also just understanding the points of leverage and, and building a case months ahead of time. This is what we're going to do on the farm bill. This is what we're going to do on the budget. This is what we're going to do on the debt ceiling. This is what we're going to do on health care. Nothing. So the broad lesson here is that you see when you actually get in Trump's face a little bit, he, he's sensitive to that. This entire thing wasn't directed at the country at large. Today's show was directed at his conservative-based voters. He committed to voting, to signing this. He doesn't have the balls to, to veto it. He never did. He has not vetoed a single bill yet. Not one. Never even threatened until today when it was already over and everyone, it was, a, it was a joke. But the reality is, it's a reflection of the conservative movement. Again, I find it funny. I was laughing. You know, I, I couldn't get anyone to talk about a veto for weeks. Suddenly in the three hours, in the 11th hour between him mentioning the idea of vetoing and then actually going back and signing it, then there was like a, you know, a firestorm. Veto, veto. All the conservatives. Why? Because Trump said it. So now I can say it. I don't want to pressure him. I'll just echo him. Now, you're right. In, in, a, in, a, in, in a real ideal world, we'd have a leader. We'd have a leader who would lead the movement. And he'd call the shots, call the plays, and everyone would cheer them on. But, you know, that's not what Trump is. Never was going to be that. We need a movement to do it, but we don't have one. We're stuck in this paradox where Trump could get our movement to finally care about things that they don't care about because he said it. Because, again, they're shallow. They just react to what they see. They don't see anything. You know, they don't think about anything. But the problem is most of the time, in order for him to speak about it, it needs to be put on his plate. And it's only going to get put on his plate if conservatives mention it. But conservatives will only mention it if Trump mentions it. And that, there's the catch-22. But what happens is there's always a list. Gorsuch and some regulations, the few that weren't you know, suspended by the courts. This and that. Oh, he appointed John Bolton. But these are all, think about it, they're all either fleeting, ephemeral things, temporary appointments. Look broadly. Look, you, you can't look at skirmishes. We win skirmishes here and there. We never win wars. Look at a 15, 20-year window and look at where things have gone on every single issue. You know, I put out, and, and, and tweet me on, at Arm Conservative if you have an answer to this. I put out in my article today, um, when was the last time you were really proud 
of something Republicans did that you wanted to shout from the rooftops. But then I qualified it by saying, and it was enduring. Because a lot of people threw out me the Welfare Reform Act, which, by the way, only put work requirements on one of 77 means-tested programs. But it was countermanded by Obama because they downright repeal our stuff. We don't repeal their stuff. This is the one-way ratchet that Margaret Thatcher always talked about. Think, even the progress, progress we're making, it's just operating within their universe. And then when they come in, because we do underwhelming things and because, because we legitimize, codify, validate every premise, assumption, and policy, and even talking point and parlance way of speaking of the left, it's self-fulfilling and they wind up winning big time next time and they, they come back even stronger than before and do even more than b- before they were in power when we got in power. And, and, and it's meaningless. There's nothing left to the Reagan revolution. It's not his fault. He spoke at the 1988 convention saying, look, I'm just the beginning. I lit a fire. You know, he was hoping the party would continue. And instead, they went backwards. And here we are, um, you know, almost 30 years later. Almost 30 years later. We have nothing to show for it. You know, what's tragic. The one issue that I think legitimately, objectively speaking, we've moved to the right where every Republican was officially good on, particularly at a state level, was guns. We enacted, you know, in dozens of states right to carry, lots of pro-gun legislation, um, and that's gone now. That is gone now because we allow a left that is promoting pro-criminal policies that we could slam them on. Perfect jujitsu for their gun agenda. Their refugee policy, their immigration policy, their sanctuary policy, their criminal justice policies, their drug policies. We could slam right back in their faces and win on guns and say, hey, how about all the stories with good guys with guns like we had in Maryland, um, my home state, St. Mary's County, where a good guy with a gun shot someone, one of these, one of these evil doers. And guess what? Maryland, unfortunately, doesn't have the right to carry, but this was a, you know, a licensed officer, school resource officer. Imagine if we had that, but no. Right to carry reciprocity on a national level. That was the one universal thing from the NRA. And they promised us we're, we're going to get that. Then they said, well, okay, we'll get it, but we have to do fixed nicks too. And now we got fixed nicks without reciprocity, as we warned about. You guys were the first to know. We had Tom, Thomas Massey on twice to talk about that. We were the first to call that. Nothing. Now, now we're going backwards on that. And that gets me to another point. It's not just Trump is a lame duck. It's states too. Here's the reality. Republicans are passing few good things on a federal or state level. And the few good things either a legislature or Congress or, well, Congress didn't pass few good things, nothing good, but a legislature or an executive, a Republican governor or Donald Trump on a presidential level enact administratively are all suspended by the courts. So we're left with nothing. We're left with nothing. Think about it. In Oklahoma, they can't even fight the homosexual agenda and homofascism mandating that everyone serve as gay weddings with their their private property. In a state like Oklahoma, 40 to 8 majority in the Senate. So you you talk about a 60-vote threshold and all the excuses. See, here's the dirty little secret. When they talk about the 60-vote threshold in Washington, I'll point to you from the states where we have, there's about, you know, 20 states where Republicans have super majorities and they do nothing with them. They have an 83% majority in the Oklahoma State Senate. And yet they blocked a a religious liberty bill partially because they oppose it and partially because um, the sponsor, they wanted to retaliate against the sponsors of the bill it was, rep- uh, it was State Senator Silk in Oklahoma, I believe, that sponsored the Religious Liberty Bill. Google Everett Piper at Washington Times. Um, she has a great article on this. She's the president of Wesleyan College in, in Oklahoma has been pushing this. So if you want to see more about that, you could go there, there uh, Everett Piper's article. But uh, the, the sponsors of the bill opposed tax increases. But that in itself raised another question. Why are Republican legislatures promoting tax increases? Oh, and by the way, they're all promoting the internet sales tax across state lines. 
the Florida legislature, super majorities, they pass gun control. And at least if you feel you're scared and you're on the hook with Parkland, at least couple it with getting rid of the promise program that incentivized and pressured states and localities, in this case of Broward County, with this culture of leniency not to lock up people like Nicholas Cruz. But nothing. We get nothing. And then the few things you get in the Mississippi legislature, they had the 15-week abortion ban within days. Done. Enjoined by, by a random district judge, Tate Reeves, who was the guy who also put the injunction on Mississippi's religious liberty bill that they passed a couple years ago. Chris McDaniel was instrumental, instrumental in pushing that, by the way. We had him on our show last week. So this is the reality we face. Same thing on a federal level. Nothing will be done. This is it. This was the last bullet in Trump's, uh, in Trump's gun. This budget bill, it's done. Nothing more. So the only thing there is is administratively. But A, he's obsessed with DACA. And, and that's another thing that just bothers me. Well, first, just to finish the thought, I'm running all over the place here. My, mild, my mind is moving 100 miles an hour. Um, so I'm just saying the courts are going to throw out everything he wants to do. He wants to do DACA on his own, but the courts are throwing that out. And, and, and that's the problem. I mean, like I spoke about last week, the Supreme Court is capricious. They didn't take the government's expedited, um, expedited appeal against Judge Alsop's DACA ruling because they said, well, first go through the Ninth Circuit. But Arizona is being forced by district judges to give driver's licenses to them. And they already went through the Ninth Circuit for five years. Four years. And the Supreme Court denied their appeal. Courts are the problem. They won't do anything about it. It's funny. We're able to stick extraneous policies in a budget bill suddenly when they're left-wing causes like gun control. That could go in there. Or forgiving student loans. That could go in there. But there was no room for judicial reform when that is the linchpin to everything. They're shutting down everything Trump wants to do. So we have in this movement a drug crisis, a political drug crisis, a morphine crisis, where there's always on some level, because the left is so extreme, so we're always able to point to one thing that, well, we got this at least. They wanted the left ones to do this. We didn't yet go that far. Our expectations are dumbed down so much. We don't get it. So Trump is, is mastering that. He had his whole list of things. Talk about the opioid money. So Trump talked about clamping down on doctors, suing pharmaceuticals. Are, are you kidding me? Prescription rates are a record low. Not record low, but they're down to 2002 levels. The, the, the drug crisis took off after that. After they clamped down on it. And Trump himself said that. He even said it a little bit in this speech, but then he contradicted himself. And then he has the nerve to talk about DACA as a good thing and then say drugs are pouring over our, our, our border, but we're funding opioids, opioids. What happened was the drug cartels used. It was when Obama announced DACA, that's when you had the massive border surge. And part of what happened was the same way it was known that if you come here as a so-called kid, you're here to stay. It was also known that even if you come here as a drug mule, they're not really going to do anything to you. This was in all the intel reports, including from Texas DPS, that it, it, the drug cartels made it very clear that's what they saw. DACA caused the drug crisis. DACA, and when I say, again, when I say the drug crisis, I don't mean the baseline that we had since the 1950s, 60s. You know, the drug, you know, we've always had drugs. I mean, this level of, of lethality, of sheer volume, all came from that. 
Trump can't have it both ways. Now, I know not all of the DACA people are evil, but a heck of a lot of them are. But here's the point. It doesn't matter. If you promote DACA, you're promoting the drug cartels because they're not like, oh, okay, so only good people could cross the border because only good people. No, it incentivizes all of the people to come and then to send teenage males as drug mules. And then again, for the 50th time, what people don't understand is the border is controlled by the drug cartels. There's about four of them running from west to east. You have the Gulf cartel controlling the Rio Grande sector, you know, on the far east. And then you have the Sinaloa cartel in the west, like Baja, Baja California, a couple, a couple of them in between. Um, you don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to cross the border to find myself a better life. You have to pay a smuggler. The smugglers work for the cartels. But, you know, even the, even the Obama administration admitted that in a, in a court case with Judge Andrew Hannon that I, that I spoke about, you know, earlier this week. So when you encourage people to come, you are sending money into the drug cartels directly, whether they're good or bad people coming over. And certainly there's a lot of drug mules, but even the ones who aren't. They're de facto drug mules because guess who makes the profits from it? That's, that is their single biggest profit in order to make the profit off of drugs, but they have to produce the drugs. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle. What starts the cycle is all the smuggling. It's a massive commodity is human smuggling. And that is empowered. It's all empowered through the amnesty agenda. So, I mean, I just found that really, really hypocritical, unbelievably hypocritical. I mean, whatever. He just sounded drunk. I mean, it, it was what I find so offensive is that it's not just that Trump is continuing all the policies of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. He's using their terminology. He's using their same lines, their same talking points. Oh, the next time, the next time. Remember that? The next time. Oh, we're going to fight the, the next battle. And then each time you have political amnesia and forget the previous time you sold us out. Oh, and, and the military. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. That's going to be our final point. I'm saving that for last because that was his big selling point. The military. That's the big political morphine to dull our senses. But um, the other point I want to make here is that Trump talks about next time. This will never Here's the thing. People forget. This is not the first budget bill. There, there were a bunch of CRs he had leverage on, but in terms of major budget bills, this is actually the third. There were two of them for fiscal year 20. Um, he first had fiscal year 2017. This is what people forget. What happened was, let, let, let's back up a little bit. In the fall of 2016, they passed a continuing resolution. So, you know, fall of 2016 is already fiscal year 2017, right? It starts October 1st, 2016. So they passed the bill, but didn't fund the full year 2017. They passed the CR into April. The idea was that, hey, whoever wins the presidency will collect the spoils and will be able to, you know, basically influence the budget right away in this first year. But they sold us out in April, gave the Democrats everything they wanted. Um, Schumer was ecstatic. It's funny, people forget this. I have dozens, dozens of articles. Google Daniel Hurwitz run over by a parked car. You know, how re Republicans got run over by a parked car, by a party that just lost the election and had no power. And Trump never threatened to veto, of course. Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director, gets up there and says, look, this is old potatoes. This is just to fill out FY 2017. That's Obama's era. We're going to do amazing stuff, stuff in 2018 for FY 2018. So, and part of it was they said because they needed more military, they got immediate military funding. So this is not the first time. They said they needed they need that for military funding in the April of 2017 budget, continuing out the rest of the FY 2017. Okay. 
We got to September of 2017, which is now going to vote on the FY 2018 budget. And that's when they passed a massive disaster bill, uh, extended the debt ceiling again, all sorts of sellouts that they didn't have to do. And they passed a few more continuing resolutions. And this bill was the final one to finish FY 2018. But don't worry, in FY 2019, I'm really going to fight. By then, dude, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have an even stronger Democrat Congress. You're going to have no leverage then. Precisely because you're failing to use, you're throwing away the ball while you have possession. But don't worry, when I no longer have possession of the ball, I'll score points. That's what it's like saying. He's right. For the rest of his presidency, he'll never have to do this again because he won't have the ability to. We forget. And what's amazing is Mick Mulvaney's OMB budget, every single account that Trump promised to cut or eliminate was increased. The community, the child care community block grant programs was one of the programs that the OMB budget wanted to abolish. Do you know it was increased by 88%? Do you know that HUD's budget went up by 20%? Department of Education went up by 10%. HHS had a massive increase. The NIH, all these programs that Trump was going to slash, the Food for Peace program, all the State Department programs, I can go on and on. It was the very programs he promised to cut were increased. They humiliated him. And, And he let it happen. So let's talk about the military. You know, Dangling military spending in front of conservatives was basically what Paul Ryan and those types have been doing for 20 years. I I gave a big lecture about this around the time of the February betrayal, and I was warning people part of why at the time I was focusing so much on foreign policy and the fact that the military fundamentally is not a spending problem. It's reorienting our priorities if we actually prioritize dealing with Mexico militarily more than Yemen and this nonsense, we'd be in better shape. So great, now we have money so we can give weapons to Shiite and Sunni sides of civil wars um, and still have no answers for the true threats, the drug cartels in Mexico, North Korea, and Iran. Oh, but let's get involved in their proxy wars. Oh, and let's have transgenderism in the military. Oh, and lower the standards and women this and women that and pregnant women Navy SEALs this and social engineering that. I- I'm just laughing as the judge is demanding that Trump surrender his documents on transgenderism in the military. And he'll listen. I mean, he'll appeal it. But if they win the appeal, which they probably will, he'll, he'll surrender it. Why not? Give me a break. I don't, I don't need it. Zero out the military budget. Who needs a military if this is what we're going to do with it? Let's talk about the policies. It's the same thing with healthcare. Oh, we need more money for insurance companies. It's a policy problem on healthcare. It's a policy problem on education. And it's a policy problem on the military and foreign policy and, and, and a strategic vision. I understand. And Mark Levin you know, will, will say this. And he said it to me when I was on the air with him when we kind of had a friendly debate over this. He said, look, you know, Daniel, no matter what, the military is expensive. I agree. Of course it's expensive. We, no matter what, under everyone's bill, we were going to spend more than $600 billion. That's, that's built into the baseline. What they're spending now is $30 billion a year more than even what Trump asked for. John McCain literally took the number out of the hat. He made it up. I'm sorry. At some point, you have to be willing to shoot the hostage. I've had enough of it. You know, when, when Mike Lee, I, I planned on talking about this anyway, when Mike Lee put out his, his bill with Bernie Sanders to, to demand authorization for what we're doing in Yemen. What are we doing in Yemen? And, and all the neoconservative websites went out and attacked him, and you're pro-Iran, and yeah, Bernie Sanders and Code Pink. Let me tell you something. Let's just speak generally for a minute. We could all agree prudence would dictate and prudence should dictate everything on foreign policy because it's not really so much a doctrine other than putting America first. But, you know, it's, it's governed by prudence. There are prudent engagements. There's stupid engagements. And there's necessary 
interventions. Okay? Code Pink will oppose the use of the military always. Okay? So I'm not going to withhold myself from advocating against a stupid engagement that's counterintuitive or helping one side of the enemy on behalf of fighting against another enemy but making us weaker and distracting us just because Code Pink will oppose it for their reasons. It's a stupid, intellectually dishonest argument. But it's a very simple thing. It's not just the Constitution that Congress, through the people, need to to control our destiny, not have these phony military generals who are for transgenderism just running our foreign policy. It needs to be in civilian control. But there's a good reason, because you need the nation on board to have a vision, not from a weak, dovish perspective. I say from a hawkish perspective, you need congressional input so we could better articulate what are the threats, what's the risk versus return matrix, matrix, who are we backing, are they reflective of a population there? Could they sustain it? Who's the bad guy? You know, what's the what what are what are the realm of outcomes? And then what's the cost benefit analysis? No one can answer the basic questions of what the it is. Daniel, we have to defeat Iran and Yemen. But do you know who's fighting the Iranian backed Houthis? Al Qaeda. And we're 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 fighting Al Qaeda at the same time we're fighting the Houthis. But then we're backing the Hadi government, backed by Saudi Arabia, which has ties to the very um, Al-Qaeda kingpin that we went after in that Navy SEAL raid that we lost Ryan Owen you know, early on, the first, one of the first few days of the Trump administration. That's how screwed up Yemen is. There's nothing you can do. It's a Sunni-Shia war where you're going to have Iran on one side, you're going to have the Al-Qaeda types on the other side, it's not like when you have the Kurds, and that's the one area where we won't engage in. There's nothing you can do there. There's no interest. You tell me why we don't spend a one one thousandth of the of the money and risk our lives by bombing the poppy fields in Mexico. That will do something. But these heavy interventions in Syria now. Where we own the infrastructure and the electricity and water needs of the people in Raqqa, Syria. So deal with that first and then talk to me about how much money we need for the military. You know, I just, I, I don't buy it. That trick has gotten old. But yet Trump is using it as if it's something new. It was literally the alpha version of acting beta. I mean, when he does beta, he does it like a man. I mean, he took every pathetic thing Ryan and McConnell had been doing for a decade and did it in spectacular fashion today. But he made himself a lame duck. It's pathetic. Why should the Democrats ever fear him? And here's what's going to happen now. They're going to lose all those majorities on a federal level, on a state level. Democrats are going to control redistricting for a decade. And believe me, Democrats are going to show them what gerrymandering looks like. And believe me, the lovely courts are suddenly going to be awfully silent because it's one direction. By the way, I don't know if I've said this point before, but it's worth repeating. This week, we lost three to five House seats in Pennsylvania because of a unelected state court, and the federal courts refuse to get involved. Now, you might tell me, Daniel, well, look, you know, shouldn't they deal with it on a state level? It's a state court. I mean, you know, why are you crying to the federal, federal courts to bail you out? I'm sympathetic to that in a vacuum if you were consistent on it. But here's the problem. So first of all, these are federal districts. I mean, it affects the entire country, meaning by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court violating the Constitution, which gives state legislatures the full power to... Um, draw maps, and the only people who can get involved are, is Congress, not state or federal courts, you know, that's affecting all of us. I mean, the, the control of the House could come down to those few seats. Not that it matters because the Democrats control it anyway. But, you know, these are federal. But, but nonetheless, I, I, I could understand an argument the federal courts shouldn't get involved. Here's what no one else will tell you. There's a state called North Carolina. And there, not only the federal districts, but the state State legislative districts, which everyone has to agree the federal government has no business involved in, 
certainly the unelected federal courts. And yet the left took them to court and they lost twice in state court. The state Supreme Court sided with the Pennsylvania, uh, with the North Carolina Republican dominated legislature on the maps on two occasions. But the Fourth Circuit swept in with a vengeance and overturned the, both, both the legislature and the Supreme Court. See, meaning you want to talk, Daniel, a Pennsylvania and a state issue, a federal court, don't, don't ask them to get involved, even though it's federal maps. Here, so, you know, here you're asking them to side on federal maps with the state legislature over state courts. In this case, it was a federal appellate court coming in and overturning both the state Supreme Court and the state legislature on state maps. And yet, and yet, when North Carolina appealed to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court sided with the Fourth Circuit and the left, including Clarence Thomas for his own kind of crazy reasons, which I understand, but the way he applied it was ridiculous and contradictory because Clarence Thomas basically said in another case that um, – the, 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 the feds have no jurisdiction over state legislative districts. And here he's like, well, you can never factor in race, even though the VRA forces them to, you know, and he put them in, he puts the states in an untenable position. It was the one, one area where I just really strongly disagreed with him. It's very hard to find that, but recently it's probably the only time I've ever disagreed with Clarence Thomas. But anyway, look, look, look at the problem there. Think about it. No one is looking broadly that we're not accomplishing anything. Oh, John Bolton was a – look, John Bolton's a great guy. He's a patriot. He's a good guy. I like him. He's good on Iran. He's good on North Korea. But, you know, on other things, he is a little bit too just stuck on that old Iraq war type of paradigm. And he hasn't learned from the mistakes. Same thing with Pompeo at, at State Department. So I'm just saying this is not the amazing Daniel, but we got Pompeo and Bolton – that's the political morphine working for you. Look at the broad thing. Look at, you know, so I, I put out my article today, which, you know, kind of gives over this sermon a little bit or parts of it, although I wrote it before the whole veto thing blew up. And, and I want to get to some of what I said. This wasn't a solution-oriented piece. The point of the piece was to note that we are the problem that until we have a conservative movement that wakes up, because I guarantee you, come Monday, Trump is going to get involved in all sorts of Biden type of fistfights that will keep our guys busy and happy and their latest hot takes on cable news. That just like in February, the betrayal didn't even last for a half a day. So maybe this will last for three quarters of a day. But we'll keep going on. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to bail the Republican Party. They're not going to work harder for people like Chris McDaniel or Jaron Jackson or Art Halverson or whatever. They're going to focus on nonsense. That was my point. That until we get off the political dope and stop numbing our sensitivities and sensibilities and recognizing the pain. Daniel, you're always so negative. Well, first, we got to feel the pain. That was the main point of this thing. But I had some throwaway lines just hinting to some ideas at the end. And I said, quote, the solution begins by first recognizing the severity of the problem we face and not ignoring it like a drug addict who becomes numb to pain. We are homeless and have been have been for quite some time. We need a new party and a new movement. We need bold new leaders with innovative ideas that are rooted in timeless principles. We need to convene a convention of the states to deal with this problem systemically. We need ordinary citizens with expertise in various issues to form task forces that will expose corruption in government and reveal the truth of what is causing various policy crises in our economy, politics, and society. And I want to get to that last point. I don't know if I'm going to have time today, but my idea of Task Force America just my general idea for civilian task forces and what I mean by that. And maybe we'll get to that later. Um, but so I sent this article out, you know, on some of my email lists with conservative fellow conservative leaders. And one of them like took apart, you, you read this, it's like a 1600 word essay. There's, you know, whether you agree or don't or disagree with me, there's a lot of very, you know, thought provoking, stirring the pot thoughts in here. And they took out a throwaway line of we need to convene a convention of the states. It was just one thing. And, you know, I mean, I support it, but I'm less kind of, you know, obsessed with it like Mark Levin is. I'm not, you know, knocking it. I'm just, you know, I believe it's too small of a thing to do. 
It's too hard to accomplish. You need 33 states to get there and then 38 states to to ratify. It's, it's you know, what, what, the things we hope to accomplish will, will be dead before then. And then, you know, even Mark Meckler, when we had him on our show, he admitted they're very small potatoes. But nonetheless, like all these leaders, you know, one person started and then everyone chimed in and just took it apart. Oh, Convention of the States, the, the left is going to mobilize in a The left is just going to – sorry there. Just uh, lost my microphone for a minute. The the left's going to jump in and just ruin everything for us. Runaway convention. Daniel, they're going to rewrite the Constitution. Now, let's forget about the fact that they're making it up. You can only – there's a check on the front end and on the back end. On the front end, you can only go to a convention on a specific item. It's not a con-con. It's an Article 5 convention of the states. It's very different. What you have in your state ballot of a of a constitutional convention means you get to open up the constitution. Here is they're, – they're going – they have 13 states to go to a convention specifically on term limits, um, balanced budget amendment, and I forgot what else with limiting government. Y you can't stick in gun control, OK? But even if you did, then on the back end, you need 38 states to ratify. Now, I don't, it's not worth debating a constitutional convention, uh, uh, Article 5 convention because – Again, I just think we're, we'll be dead by then. I think I disagree. I think it's too underwhelming. But I don't care whether you support a convention of the states or not. It's the argument behind why they're opposing it that, that is emblematic of the fact that they don't get it. They don't recognize the severity. Daniel, they might rewrite the Constitution. You fools do not see a district judge at the flip of a, a flick of a wrist could codify balls cutting and redefine gender, redefine marriage, redefine borders, redefine sovereignty, redefine citizenship. Codify everything Obama does. Codify every Democrat gerrymander and throw out every Republican district. Throw out voter ID. Refuse to allow us to check for citizenship for voter re registration. Kill shots on this country. Overnight, they, they, they have raped our Constitution beyond imagination. And everyone, including conservative legal people, think a district judge has the power to do that. Why in the world would the left go to uh, Article 5 conventions, try to get 38 bicameral state legislatures to adopt something when they could get a single district judge to do it overnight and our stupid Republican politicians, backed by the stupid, pathetic, impotent conservative movement, will say, it's the law of the land. It's the law of the land. Are you, are you stupid or something? They could walk in through the front door. Why would they climb a 15,000-foot cliff when they could just walk straight into the land and take it without firing a shot? Because they don't realize the severity. I don't care. I'm not trying to defend the Convention of the States here. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But it, what bothered me is the thought behind it that they don't recognize where we are. I'm like, so what is your solution? What's your solution? You know? Oh, let's go talk about Mueller all day and Stormy Daniels and McDougal. And that's what it's going to be all week next week. With Congress out, you know, the president back on, on the golf range in Florida. They're not going to be talking about this. They're not going to be talking about how do we reverse the omnibus? How do we pressure the Freedom Caucus to break off? How do we get rid of Ryan and McConnell? How do we foment more primary challenges? How do we change rules on primaries and state conventions? How do we form a new party? How do we form citizen task forces, which I talked about? Um, just real briefly what I mean about this, and I'm not giving it justice. It's an idea that popped in my mind when I was working, and I'm still working on my opioid report, which is really, you know, again, the illicit drug crisis. The government creates a lot of crises and misdiagnoses them and then has terrible policies that cause everything. And, you know, we're expecting the Republicans to do stuff for us and point this out. They're never going to do it. We expect conservative organizations to do it, but they never do it. And as I was preparing the research, um, I realized that I'm not one of the only ones that understands these issues and are saying them. I'm one of the only people with a platform who's using it for that and is saying things like that. 
but I but I got to understand that there's plenty of smart, patriotic, private American citizens that don't work in public policy that are really good and really understand these issues. So, you know, through friends of friends and friends and contacts and colleagues, I got in touch with border agents, with DA agents, former DA agents, law enforcement, DPS people, um, healthcare experts. And I was like, man, I wish I can get you on my show and maybe some of them I will. I wish I can get you recorded. They're saying really good stuff, you know, that no one talks about. We, I was like, man, we need, we need a narrative. Imagine if we exposed this. Imagine if we ran an election on this. And the idea just crossed my mind. I was like, I should, I should create a citizen's task force to put out a report exposing the true cause of the opioid crisis and the true solution and how government's making it worse. And you kind of do, do what Ralph Nader did with his consumer protection stuff back in the 50s. And you go through, you have one by one, education, healthcare. You show how fuel and energy, how the government is hurting us. You don't need a think tank. You don't need, you know, we're, we're, the problem is we need money. And ultimately, you do need a little bit of money. But here you just have an ad hoc task force of private citizens with expertise in these fields that aren't involved in politics but should be. But, you know, they have better day jobs. And you get together and you put out reports. Is this a silver bullet? Is a report going to save the republic? No. But you get where I'm headed with this. I want to develop this idea. Let me know. Email me at dharwitz at CRTV. Tweet me at rmconservative. Yes, I know I'm in the Stone Ages. I don't do Facebook. But uh, let me know your ideas. Let me know what you think of this idea. Let me know if any of you guys could help. I'm sure. I mean, this is probably the most intelligent audience in, in all of politics. You guys, the comments I see, I, I, you guys really get it. And, you know, the only difference between me and you is that you guys actually have a day job. You, you guys actually have a real job. I don't. So, you know, I focus on this all day. But many of you have good insights and good knowledge about res- your respective fields. And that's what we're lacking on, in conservative politics while everyone focuses on, hey, I got to get my latest hot take. You know, I love it. In some of these, and I'm not going to mention names here, but some of these Twitter timelines, there's some people that never mentioned a word about the omnibus bill or the budget bill the past month, including this week and this day or yesterday. Certainly never mentioned anything about the president vetoing and how the president should veto. Suddenly, when, the, when Trump himself talks about it, they're like, yeah, veto, veto, this is a horrible bill. Oh, so now, now it's kosher to talk about it because Trump said, gave you permission? Where's the leadership? I don't expect it from Trump. You know, where he does lead, that's extra credit, and I'm happy. You know, I didn't have high expectations. Everyone's like, Daniel, he's not a conservative. Okay, so he's not a conservative. But what about the people who say they are conservative? And they focus on nonsense. And let me just end with this. I understand... I don't want to be, you know, self-ingratiating here. I understand, you know, to, to, to make what I do the most important aspect of public policy. I understand that there's a lot of important aspects. There's important things to engaging in the culture and speaking on college campuses and, you know, having fights on cable news and engaging on some of the more less policy issues but are political. But here's the problem, like I said. It's like having the icing without the cake. It's like having the harmony without the melody. It's like fighting the World Series while you're down three to zero in the playoff games. Before we, we, you need people like me, more people doing what I'm doing, to actually build a conservative movement and have us doing what we do before we bring it to the people and sell it. We're selling something that doesn't exist, and our, our side that we're defending is doing the opposite. So what's the point? I understand, you know, you would then need someone to take a message like mine, picture a Ben Shapiro type of guy who's extremely, extremely talented at this, take it to a broader audience. Don't just preach to the choir, convince young people about these ideas, but we have to be pushing them, formulating them, articulating them, and consistently strategizing and being on message about and and focusing on them. Without that, what's the point if we don't have more of this? And until we do that, Donald Trump and the entire Republican Party 
on a federal and state level is now one big lame duck. Next week, we're going to have a lot more. I'm going to try to finish my opioid report, um, or at least the non-Medicaid part of it, the border part of it. We're going to have Captain Jaron Jackson, who's a friend of the show. He's been on a couple times. He is running against Mark Wayne Mullen in Oklahoma's District 2 in eastern Oklahoma. He, he looks very strong there. We're going to have him on as part of our next Meet the Candidates series, hopefully Monday. Let us know what you want asked of him and what other people you want on the show. And again, look, I can't do this alone. Everyone everyone asked me, Daniel, what shall we do? What shall I, I don't know. I have some nascent ideas, a mixture of ideas, but I'm just one person. I'll tell you this much. One, one man can't do this. If we had all the musicians, the political musicians in our orchestra singing on tune, I guarantee you, We'd be getting a lot more done. And at, a, at the very least, Donald Trump would be vetoing bills and doing a lot more things. And that was self-evident today. Thank you all for, all for listening. Have a great weekend. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.